WWDC happened on Monday, and holy cow, there was a lot to cover, so cover it we shall. We're going around the tech space and looking at all the announcements from the online keynote. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Hello and welcome to the Benefit of a Dowd podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we are diving deep into WWDC land because there's a lot of water to swim in there, and we brought our scuba gear. Yes, I'm sorry, Android fans. One more week, I promise, and then we'll shut up about it until at least September. But I do have a treat for my Android fan faithful at the end of this podcast. But first, let's dive into the news of the week. Before we get started, I have two announcements for you. First of all, next week, I'm not going to do any news. My home state of Illinois has moved into phase four of COVID-19 recovery, which means we can host a 4th of July party. And it's the first party we've thrown since Christmas, so we have a lot to get caught up on. But never fear, we've got enough content for you to keep you occupied. Next week will be newsless, but it will still be a full show. A bit of a tablet palooza, actually. Also, like I mentioned last week, I'm reworking my Patreon to make it a little less funky. You can still get in on the ground floor for just $2 a month, and you will get full access to full interviews and the Discord channel. That's a small change, but co-producer Cliff and I are releasing a new podcast that will be available to patrons first. This podcast will basically recap the previous month's top stories and add a bit more conversation and depth to them. That show will be going out on July 1st, and the pilot will be for patrons only to, you know, get some feedback on the format and stuff like that. Starting in August, patrons will get the recap first, followed by everyone else later in the main feed. And speaking of later, starting in July, all full interviews will be made available to the public on my Patreon page at the end of each month. They'll be private for patrons until the last day of the month, but then they'll drop for everyone. I'm leaving them in the Patreon feed, though, so that full interviews don't clutter up the main podcast feed. But if you want to hear more from Michael Fisher or CKID or TCL, you can go to patreon.com slash benefit of a doubt and listen to them there without having to subscribe. So that'll be fun and better for everyone, I think. So overall, good times. Now we can get to the news. Microsoft started off this week by announcing that it was closing the doors of its game streaming service, Mixer. That would be the same Mixer that Microsoft paid major gamers like Ninja millions of dollars to come to its platform. Microsoft announced this basically smack dab in the middle of a WWDC keynote that was going on. Perhaps hoping no one would notice? Well, Microsoft, we noticed. Microsoft is instead going to partner up with Facebook Gaming, which is bigger and still run by terrible people, but whatever, it's not Twitch, I guess. Gamers who stream exclusively on Mixer will be free to stream on Facebook or go back to Twitch, and yeah, they'll be going back to Twitch counting their money. The Verge goes on to point out that Microsoft is no stranger at giving up services that just aren't working, citing Groove Music as an option. By the way, Microsoft is also no stranger at throwing gobs of money at a failing platform, (coughs) Windows Phone. Well, so long, Mixer. We barely knew you, and in my case, I literally barely knew you. 
TCL pushed out an update this week to the TCL 10 Pro and the TCL 10L, which is supposed to contain improvements to the camera, and in the case of the 10 Pro, and I'm quoting here, quote, improved touch panel performance and user experience, which I guess is PR for getting rid of phantom touches. I've been testing this update out, and yeah, the phantom touches are still there. Plus, and I'm sorry, but this deal actually ends today, but both Amazon and Best Buy are knocking the price down by 15%, making the 10 Pro just over $380 and the 10L just over $210, both of which are much better pricing for both phones. If you're looking for a new phone, this might be worth a look. I could honestly spend this entire news segment talking about products that companies are killing off, and it's been a pretty freaking gruesome week, if I'm totally honest. I won't spend the whole news segment talking about those, but I do have two more that are pretty significant. The first is Facebook, or Oculus, or... Facebookulus, whatever, they're retiring the Oculus Go VR headset, and in fact they announced that they would no longer work on any headsets with less than 6 degrees of freedom. Basically what 6 degrees of freedom means when you move forward, back, left, right, up, or down, the headset tracks you. The Oculus Go could move left and right and forward and back, but not up and down or something like that. I don't know, I never had one. But I couldn't play Beat Saber, and that was enough to kill it for me. Anyway, that's going away. And this is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because the Oculus Go was like $200, which is crazy cheap VR. It's a good thing, though, because... IMHO, it wasn't really representative of a good VR experience. It was honestly the kind of VR experience that made you excited for VR, so you go buy it, and then you bring it home, and then you realize it's not all that great. So you either return it, or just get mad that you wasted $200. Neither is a good customer experience, so it's probably for the best that this thing gets retired. Oculus Quest is now the entry-level VR, and is fantastic entry-level VR, so it will leave a much better impression, especially for first-time users. In short, this was the right move. RIP Oculus Go, you won't be missed. Meanwhile, Segway, the company most popularly attributed to Paul Blart and major urban downtown tours, announced that it will no longer make the Segways. It turns out that the eponymous personal transportation vehicles don't really sell well, you know, now that every mall and tour group in America has their own fleet. People, just normal people like you and me, just never really bought them. They were meant to bridge the last mile of transportation between, like, the bus and your ultimate destination, but they were probably decades too early. I'd imagine if they'd been developed in the, I don't know, 2010s area, they might have grown popular instead of, like, bird scooters as one-hour rental devices. But even that might not have saved poor Segway. I never went on a Segway tour, and now it looks like I may never get to go on one, which kind of makes me both sad and relieved at the same time. Regardless, Kevin James should probably buy the company for extending his career by a few years. Otherwise, Segways just ride off into the sunset, always upright, never tipping over, but still into the sunset. Ron Amadeo from Ars Technica wrote an opinion piece about how YouTube Music is holding his music collection for ransom. At odds here is YouTube Music and the Google Home's inability to play his music without paying for the streaming part of YouTube Music. Here's the rub, though. This is Ron's music collection that he uploaded to YouTube Music. It's music that he owns, and he wants to play the songs that he owns on a speaker that he owns, but without YouTube Music's streaming subscription... 
he can't do that. Now, full disclosure, I have YouTube Music Premium with the streaming option, and I don't own any of my own music. I stopped buying music back in the 90s, basically because my brother always bought his music and I could just borrow it. So honestly, I haven't purchased a song in decades. So this isn't really a problem for me, but I can totally see Amadeo's point here. And what makes the whole situation even worse is that Google Play Music could stream his songs to Google Home without a subscription. That's the part here that really sucks, and I'm totally on Ron's side here. Google is doing a crappy thing here, and it probably wouldn't even think about this particular edge case because... Who wouldn't want to subscribe to our service and get all these great things? Well, you know, people who own their own music already, for one. Overall, I kind of think that this is an oversight on Google's part, and I fully expect this to be fixed in the not-too-distant future, even though Amadeo did reach out to Google and they basically told him to pay up or shut up. I can't imagine this goes on for much longer, and for Ron's sake, I hope I'm right. And speaking of edge cases, shortly after WWDC's keynote, it was revealed that Boot Camp, which allows you to install Windows 10 on a Mac, won't work on Apple's Silicon. At least not yet. It turns out that virtualization will be the way to run Windows on a Mac. You won't be able to boot up with it. This kind of sucks for people running Hackintoshes. And by the way, shout out to Twitter user GHT001 for reminding me about the term Hackintosh. Anyway, it's an edge case. Microsoft doesn't license Windows to run on ARM chips, and even if it did, it would require driver development by Apple, which (laughs) I don't see that happening. So if you're planning on picking up a brand new MacBook with the intention of installing Windows on it, make sure you grab one of those last Intel MacBooks that Apple is still really excited about for some damn reason, because as of right now, that's going to be your last shot. Or, you know, you could buy a Surface Book. Just a thought. Slack really wants you to stay out of your inbox, so it announced Slack Connect today. Slack Connect basically allows you to connect your Slack account, or your company's Slack account, I guess, with other Slack accounts from other companies. The result is that you can chat with your banker rather than sending an email, which is, I don't know, good? Kind of depends on who you are, I suppose. Let's say you're a software developer who works a lot with some other developers and your website hosting company and a bank. You can use Slack Connect to add all those businesses to your Slack room and just send messages instead of emails. It's an interesting idea, but honestly... I'm not sure how awesome it is for those other companies. It's bad enough that they have to dodge your emails. Now that they're going to have to dodge Slack messages, I don't don't know how tenable that's going to be. On the other hand, it is much quicker than emails, so there is a plus side. Of all the companies that I've been a part of who also use Slack, I could think of maybe one that would take advantage of this, and that's only because it's all one large company, but had broken out into different Slack rooms for some reason. Now they could bring the family back together again. Other than that, though, I'm not sure I see it. Slack is pretty cool, for sure, and it will probably help streamline communications for large corporations who often work with other large corporations. But for the drones in those corporations, I could see this being a mixed bag. Good luck, slackers. Wait, that came out wrong. I'll be the first to admit, I want a Tesla. They're very aspirational products, and they do a lot of things right. I have yet to take a listener's advice and go test drive one, but I think I will sometime soon. Anyway, that being said, J.D. Power included Teslas in their car owner's survey this year for the first time, and the results were... not awesome. 
Basically, JD Power rounds up the owners of brand new cars and asks them what, if any, problems the owners encountered in the first 90 days of ownership. The 223 questions are broken down into nine categories, including, and this is a quote from Ars Technica, by the way, infotainment, features, powertrain, seats, driving experience, climate, and driving assistance. <laughs> Did they happen to ask that guy who ran into an overturned truck? Just curious. Interestingly, infotainment accounted for nearly a quarter of all problems reported across the board. Voice recognition, Android Auto, and CarPlay, and connectivity issues were among the top complaints. Interesting, and possibly not even the car manufacturer's fault. But anyway, of all the brands surveyed, Tesla came in dead last with a score of 250 problems per 100 cars, or as JD Power puts it, 250 PP100. That's an average of 1.66 problems per new car in the first 90 days. That's not great. Leading the charge in this survey were Dodge and Kia, who both scored 136 PP100, which if you ask me, still isn't all that great. The industry average was 166 PP100. The industry average was 166 PP100. Overall, Luxury cars did not do well with Porsche, Jaguar, or Jaguar, as the commercials say, Mercedes-Benz, and Audi all appearing in the bottom 10. So, at least Tesla's in good company? Eesh, yikes. And finally, Amazon will buy autonomous vehicle maker Zooks for around $1.2 billion with a B dollars, and a lot of people are pointing at that last mile delivery services as the obvious intent here. I'm kind of wondering if Amazon just wants to get in on the autonomous ride-sharing game here, or both. Honestly, whichever company ultimately gets either one of those things right could basically print their own money. Not to mention Zooks currently has people on staff who used to be with Tesla, Apple, and Google on the payroll, so this might just be a talent grab. So regardless of motivation, this is a potentially huge deal. Zooks will operate as an independent company separate from Amazon, but, you know, with a much bigger bank account. So that'll be fun. I still haven't taken a ride in a self-driving taxi, and I still really want to. So maybe this will get me closer to that. We'll have to follow this story and see what develops. This Tech Yeah segment is a twofer, so that's fun. It's actually kind of a threefer when you think about it. You'll see what I mean in a second. If you're like me, you have started building out your smart home, and one of the easiest things to build out in a smart home is lighting. I predominantly use Philips Hue lights throughout most of my home, and I use Google Home and an Echo Dot to control them. But one of the hardest things I've had to deal with, and this is going to sound silly, but bear with me, is the other humans in my home. My wife and my kids have tried to get on board with the smart lighting thing, but unfortunately, I've found that the instinct to just flip a switch is too ingrained in people to turn on lights. I even tried duct taping the light switches in place. For a time, I even considered just outright removing the light switches altogether. So I went out and I got some Philips Hue dimmer switches and I stuck them to the wall. These dimmer switches unfortunately only work with Philips Hue bulbs, but since that's 90% of the bulbs in my house, that's okay. The light switches allow you to turn the lights on and off and also dim and brighten the lights with two additional buttons. 
Plus, in the Philips app, you can set up up to five scenes for those lights. If you want the lights to go all the way on, press once. If you want a night light, press on twice. Light switches come with base plates that are magnetic and also have double-sided tape on them, so you can stick them pretty much anywhere you want. Our exterior doors are steel, so for the kitchen and living room, I just attach them straight to the doors magnetically. In other living spaces, I attach them to the wall, right next to the old switches, which were still duct tape, by the way. And it worked great! Except when it didn't, because people still freaking flip the switches! Urgh! So I went one more step, and I found a neat little switch cover on Amazon designed to hold Philips Hue light switches on top of the old switches. Basically, it's like a plastic shell with a metal washer in it that the Philips Hue light switch attaches to, and the shells are deep enough to install on top of and completely cover the existing switch out of sight, out of mind. Plus, since the Philips Hue switches are magnetically attached, you can take them off and actually flip the physical switch if, you know, your internet goes out or your Wi-Fi goes out for any reason. When it's time to move, you just take the shell and the old switches are there for the new owner. It's pretty awesome. Now, is it completely ridiculous that I had to spend, you know, 20 bucks to control my $30 light bulbs and another $8 to mount the $20 light switches? Absolutely. Just frickin' use Google. But if you happen to live in a house that's infested by normals, this is a good solution for you. Just don't let them hear you use the word infested when you're talking about them. Trust me. So there you go, a twofer of tech yeah, the Philips Hue light switch and the light switch cover. Oh, and the Philips Hue bulbs themselves, which, yeah, they're a little pricey, but honestly, they're the best bulbs that I've tried so far, and it's not even close. But I'll save those for another tech yeah segment. Apple was very, very busy this year, or at least it seemed busier than a normal year. Not really sure why. Apple's WWDC keynote took around one hour and 45 minutes from start to finish, and I wanted to start off with some overall impressions. First of all, whoa. We've seen some companies hold virtual presentations thus far, but Apple blew them all out of the water with what amounted to a 1 hour and 45 minute infomercial of what's going down in Casa de Apple. There were sets and motion graphics and green screens, you name it, Apple had it. And honestly, Apple tends to kill it on the presentation, so I wasn't really surprised in the slightest, but all the same, well played Apple. Tim Cook started off the show talking about diversity and supporting black and brown communities and then proceeded to show us white guy after white guy in its presenters. Basically, the old white guys acted as MCs before tossing it over to women to explain things in depth. I might be wrong here, but I only saw one black gentleman the entire presentation. We're going to file this one under a miss, but thanks for playing, Apple. At least there were a lot of women there, so you do have that going for you. And a final overall impression... No hardware, like, at all. There was some talk about Mac minis for developers, and we'll talk about those a bit later, but nary a new device was shown. Heck, the most exciting devices they showed us were in the form of screenshots and animations. That's not really a surprise either. In fact, very little of the presentation was surprising. So what was presented? Well, Apple started off with iOS, specifically iOS 14. There was some speculation that Apple was going to change the name to iPhone OS, but that's a big bag of nope, so iOS it is. iOS started off with the app library, and you might be thinking, app library? Is that anything like an app drawer? 
Why, yes it is, but it's Apple being Apple and organizing your app launcher into categories that it thinks your app should go into because alphabetical would just be too easy. The app library takes all the apps you have and organizes them into categories and makes you search for them that way instead of just dumping everything onto the home screen. So, yeah, Apple has an app drawer now, but it uses the Dewey Decimal System or some other made-up stuff that only Apple knows and only Apple will ever know. By the way, the Dewey Decimal System is what libraries, real live brick-and-mortar libraries, use to sort books. And, by the way, libraries are what people used to get information from before Wikipedia and Google. So now that I feel old as hell, let's move on. Two categories that will be in the app library are recently added apps because you just installed it, so you might want to, you know, use it, and app suggestions. These are the apps that Siri thinks you might want to use based on time, your location, or whatever that's really only accurate like, what, 10% of a time, and that's on Android too. Don't think I'm just hating. One other major change that Apple is bringing to iOS 14 is app widgets on the home screen. That's right, no longer are widgets confined to that crappy today menu that no one uses. You can set up widgets in up to three different sizes and place them on your home screen. So yeah, basically Apple reinvented Windows Phone and it solved the app problem. And it's funny because the day after WWDC's keynote, just about every Android site out there started pointing out that most Android users don't even use widgets on their home screens anymore. Maybe occasionally you'll see a Google search bar or weather widgets, but that's really about it. So in this case, Apple may not only be late to the party, they may have already missed the party, but again, it's okay because now Apple users can have their own party. You can also open a smart stack of widgets, which is basically widgets that Siri thinks you'll want to see, with probably about the same success rate as the suggested apps. Apple is also bringing picture-in-picture -picture to the iPhone, which Honestly, I kind of thought it already had. You can already watch picture-in-picture -picture on the iPad. As a matter of fact, while I was writing the script, I was watching Supergirl. And you can pinch to zoom and everything, but now it's on the iPhone, which is cool. Apple redesigned Siri to be more minimal, since Siri itself is so very bad, no one should use it. Actually, that's not true. No, I mean, Siri is terrible, but that's not why Apple redesigned it. Siri can do translations, which is neat, and speaking of translations, Apple introduced Google Translate with an Apple sticker on it. Like, seriously, everything about Apple's new Translate app is basically Command-C, Command-V from Google Translate. But in a very Apple kind of move, they added a new feature called Conversation Mode. Basically, when you turn your phone to landscape mode, you can view the translated text side by side. One language on one side, another language on the other, with a common microphone button. The idea is you speak English on the left, and your friend hablos espanol on the other side, and you have the, your conversation in this entirely not awkward way. Still, awkward or not, I kind of like that implementation as a sort of get us by until we really figure out how to do this kind of way. And finally, one of arguably the biggest additions to iOS 14 is the ability to set default email and web browser client. This is pretty huge, and frankly, I almost missed the announcement altogether because they did not spend a lot of time on this at all. But basically what that means is when you click a URL, it opens in Chrome. Or, you know, whatever you set as your default browser. Or when you click on a mail link, it'll open in Gmail. Or you know, whatever email client you want. Another neat gesture that people found after the presentation is the triple back tap gesture, undoubtedly coming soon to an Android phone near you. Basically, you can tap the back of the phone two or three times and the phone will do something like 
launch an app, or take a screenshot. They didn't mention it during the presentation, but it's something people discovered afterward, and it's one of the coolest things they added to iOS 14. I can't wait to see which Android OEM steals that first. Now, I'm three minutes into this story already, and we've only covered iOS 14, so we're going to rapid-fire a few more of these, starting with messages. Apple made pin conversations a thing so you can keep your close contacts closer, and they added 20 new hairstylings and headwear styles to Memojis, which, curiously, are still a thing. Oh, and one of those headwear styles is a face mask because it's 2020, and we all need to make sure we never forget about this disaster of a year. In maps, Apple rolled out new maps that the U.S. has been enjoying in the U.K., Ireland, and Canada, eh? But they also added bike directions, which I don't think anyone realized they didn't already have. But they didn't, and now they do, but only in like a half dozen cities around the world, none of which are Chicago, so wah-wah. In CarPlay, they added wallpaper on the screen you shouldn't be looking at because you're driving and keep your eyes on the road, for God's sakes! And they added new app categories for parking apps, food ordering, and EV charging. There was also a quick crossover thing where they talked about maps and charging apps working together to estimate your charge on a drive and suggesting charge stations for you along the way. Coming soon on a BMW near you, you can use your phone as a car key, which is neat. And by the way, this will work on Android too because Google is part of the same consortium, or so I heard. I could be wrong, but I also don't have a 2021 BMW, so I really don't care. App clips are basically Google's instant apps, but less crappy, with a brand new kind of QR code that no one will ever use. iPad OS gets home screen widgets now too, so I might actually use them, but eh, probably not. Incoming phone calls are now notifications that you can dismiss if you don't feel like talking to your mom, but you really should talk to her because it's your mom, dude. You can use Apple Pencil to write inside of text fields. Apple is calling it Scribble because the name Scribble is cute. Apple is also bringing a form of WebOS's universal search into Apple, which means you can search for content on your phone or tablet or on the web, and it'll find it. Truth be told, WebOS had it right, and no one since, so good luck with that, Apple. AirPods Pro are getting spatial audio, which could potentially be pretty cool. Plus, they're going to auto-switch between devices, so if you're watching a movie on your iPad and a call comes in on your phone, you can answer it with the AirPods. WatchOS had a bunch of stuff, including more complications, multiple complications from a single app, watch face sharing a la John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, and there's sleep tracking! Even though the battery will... Probably die before you wake up! Wait, why did I do that echoey voice thing? Batteries dying are not dramatic! Am I done? Apparently not! Oh, and the watch can automatically detect when you're washing your hands based on the movement of the accelerometer and the squishy sounds of soapy hands, and now I really want to know how they trained watches to differentiate between washing hand squishy sounds and other squishy sounds like, Hey, is that soap? Nah, bro. Spaghetti. And of course, if you want a total breakdown of everything Apple Watch, friend of the show Renee Ritchie has you covered, and I've linked his video in the show notes. Apple also took a moment to talk about privacy because 
Apple. Basically, they're going to force app developers to disclose exactly what information they're harvesting, and they're comparing it to nutrition labels on foods. You know, that thing that everyone ignores except for people that pretty much already know what not to eat? Well, now it's in apps too. But seriously, this is terrific, and we're very happy about it. And next we get to macOS 11 Big Sur. That's S-U-R, not S-I-R. For Big Sur, they redesigned a whole bunch of stuff like the dock and native app icons and menu bars, which are now translucent, so no one will know what they can actually click on anymore. Lovely. They brought the iPad Control Center to the Mac, which could potentially be cool. Finally, a great way to turn on that flashlight. If only they would install a flashlight. Macs get widgets now, which is probably a cool thing, but I honestly can't remember the last time I actually saw the desktop on my MacBook, so I won't be using them. So that's it for Big Sur, and it might seem like I glossed over a lot, but I didn't, and that's kind of the sad part. Apple did make some changes to Safari, but by this point in the presentation, I stopped giving a crap because, you know, Chrome bros for life. But then we get to the big potato. Apple is indeed transitioning to its own silicon based on ARM technology, which is probably not a terrible idea, except it probably is. Apple is planning a two-year transition from Intel to Apple, with new Apple Silicon MacBooks shipping this year, but also some Intel MacBooks in the pipeline that they're really excited about. But not like that excited, right, Tim? That's probably the most confusing part here, because if you're going all in on ARM, then why make Intel at all? Sure, you modified macOS Big Sur to work on both Intel and ARM, and you've developed tools to help developers get their apps working on both too, and I totally get that some Intel MacBooks were probably already well into their production cycles, that you didn't just want to scrap them, but are you really excited about them? Is this Apple just hedging its bets against ARM? I doubt it, but seriously, this ARM tech better be mind-bogglingly great, or I might be switching back to Windows when it's time to upgrade. There's just so many mixed messages going on here. Getting back to ARM, both Microsoft and Adobe have developed their flagship products for Mac on ARM. That's Office and Creative Suite. And according to Apple, they all run just great, and that's just great. Ugh. Apple also announced that Mac Minis with ARM chips on them were available for developers to buy and try out. This is not the final silicon that will go into Macs of the future, they're basically just iPad Pro chips, but it should give developers a good idea when they're recompiling their apps. Now, there was a lot of other talk about recompiling and porting and other dev stuff that I only barely understood. Bottom line, this is the future, so devs better get on board pronto. And by the way, new MacBooks will be able to run iPad and iPhone apps as well. And if that's not the best reason to finally make touchscreen MacBooks, I don't know what is. Now, am I jonesing to play Clash Royale on my MacBook? No. Nor should running on a MacBook be seen as encouragement to dev for iOS iOS should be the encouragement for devving on iOS, but this will give Apple the opportunity to even more fully integrate the Apple ecosystem into one cohesive unit, and that's pretty damn cool. So that's going to do it for WWDC. It was a really great show put on by the usual suspects. Plus, 9to5Mac pointed this out, but the fact that the MCs never had to pause for applause or whooping made the show fly by, which is really great. Personally, I'd love it if all dev conferences and new phone unveilings all took on this persona. 
You wouldn't have to worry about on-stage hiccups or shills whooping it up in the audience or worse, an executive pausing for applause and <laughs> it just isn't there. But alas, as soon as this corona thing is over, it'll be back to stages and whooping and ugh. But for now, Apple nailed it on the new normal and congrats for that. Now, if I know my audience, I suspect some of you are thinking, all right, can we get off the iOS love fest already? And the answer is yes, kind of. As it happens, most websites dedicated to Android came out with a whole list of things that WWDC stole from Android, and one of them was not a number row on the keyboard. Damn it. But Ryan Hager over at Android Police had a great list of 16 things that Apple, air quotes, borrowed from Android and Google. And I wanted to share the list with you. Now, the article is laced with a bit of snark, but not so much as to be tasteless. I think Ryan did a great job here sticking to the point. And the one thing that demonstrates this well is that while Apple fans may ooh and ah over a lot of apple things, rightly so, Apple still has a long way to go to catch up with Android. And that's fine. Everyone copies everyone, but here are 16 things that are new to Apple users, but might seem familiar to the Android crowd. First and foremost, and we can't emphasize this enough, replacing the email client and browser with Gmail and Chrome. I mean, with alternative default apps, but let's face it, I'm going to replace them with Gmail and Chrome. But Firefox and Brave can stand up and represent as well. Regardless, it's long overdue and possibly the most un-Apple thing announced on Monday. Next, we talked about widgets on the home screen. Previously, for those who weren't aware, widgets on iOS were relegated to a today shade that you got when you pulled down notifications and then swiped over. They were basically useless, so moving them onto the home screen makes sense if it's, what, 2013, 2014? Widgets on the home screen have been fading from Android, so I'm guessing Apple is just picking up the torch at this point. The app library is basically an app drawer, which Android has had forever and Apple has had for never. This is a good thing, even if it is categorized and not just alphabetical. This is also a twofer because the suggested apps category in the app drawer is similar to Google's suggested apps at the top of some app drawers and probably about as accurate. Next up is phone call notifications that don't stop everything you're doing and demand your attention. Android phone call notifications have been something you can swipe away for a long time, and Apple is finally following suit. But again, it's your mom, dude. Ryan lists picture-in-picture as an option here, but seeing as how that's been on iPads for a while now, I'm only giving him half credit for that one. The next feature on the list is a wind-down mode, which is a feature that basically grabbed its name directly from the Google version. Google has since changed the name to bedtime mode, but basically your phone wants you to go sleepy, so put the damn thing down already. Siri's redesign looks very similar to Google Assistant's redesign, basically just a glowing ball at the bottom of the screen as opposed to the whole screen monstrosity we've been dealing with. I mean, Siri's going to tell you the wrong thing anyway. May as well just do it in a ball and not take up the whole screen to do it. Maps getting bike support is next, which, like I said before, I didn't even realize Apple Maps didn't have that yet, but don't feel bad, Apple. Amazon Maps still doesn't have bike routing. And yes, to answer your next question, yes, Amazon tablets do have a Maps app. Apple Translate, like I mentioned before, is basically a copy-paste of Google Translate. They didn't quite copy the icon, but they used the same two characters for it. 
Apple Maps gets speed camera alerts, which again, we didn't even realize weren't there in the first place. iOS gets on-device voice recognition, but Twitter user James Cham points out that Apple's version is insanely slower than Google's version. There's an embedded tweet in the Android Police article that really shows the difference, and it's huge, so make sure you check that out. Safari also picked up native language translation and password monitoring. Google has translated web pages for years, if not decades, but also monitors the web for any saved passwords being swiped elsewhere. So that's fun. App clips are basically Google's instant apps that, like I said before, don't suck. And finally, selfie camera mirroring, which is a thing that some cameras do by default and others don't have, and I never really cared enough to pay attention, but iOS 14 can do it now, so woohoo! So that's the list, and I wanted to sprinkle in a little Android love here for my audience since we've been freebasing iOS for the past two weeks. I hope you enjoy the article. Please do go read the article by Ryan Hager, and enjoy. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. WWDC has come and gone, and now we probably don't have to talk about Apple again until September, so that's nice. I'd like to thank Clifton M. Thomas for co-producing the show and generally being an awesome dude. And next week, remember, we're skipping the news segment, but we're talking tablets, so that's going to be fun. And in the meantime, as always, I thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>